Welcome everybody to podcast number 228 of the Metabilis 2, featuring myself, Ben. And I am David. And today, what are we doing today? What we're doing today is we're looking at the best sets and set designers of any particular story of the 1960s. So it's top five. Top five yeah, sets. Oh, okay. Top five. So Top five. We're going to go out humming, humming the scenery. Our standard top five rules, uh, we'll take turns, and if we both have the same set, set designer, we'll do snap, and we'll talk about it... Uh, together. Together, yes. Yeah. So... Uh, Who goes first? Flip Whoa. a coin. Heads or tails? I am choosing heads. All right. Heads it is. Whoa, I go first. And my first choice of best set of 1960s is an early one, and I'm going to go with the Aztecs. Ooh. And Barry Newbury. Yeah, so uh, explain. Why would you choose the Aztecs? Why, would I, why, why not? <laughs> um, it's really good. It's, I mean, I will, you know, I've always had a soft spot for um, the Aztecs as a culture. I think they're, they're pretty cool and interesting. And you'll see with the rest of my choices, I reward ambition. Mm-hmm. And this is a fantasy show. There is no point in going like, uh, you can see that it's just a painted backdrop of Mexico rather than they actually filmed it in, <laughs> in Mexico, 16th century <laughs> Mexico. Of course they didn't mm-hmm. because that's not possible. Um, so, of course, it's made up. And, of course, there's no computer-generated imagery because this is the 1960s. And, of course, it kind of looks like a painted backdrop because everybody's basically coming from theatre because it's the mm-hmm. early 1960s. But just the desire... Or the the brief to a designer saying, okay, we're going to do a story. It's going to be set in 16th century Tenochtitlan. Um, go for it, mate. And Barry Newbury goes, okay, I'll get some books out of the library and I'll design some sets. And it looks really good. I mean, I, I'm thinking particularly the top of the pyramid. Right. Um, which, of course, is the money shot of any show about uh, ancient Mexican, ancient pre-Columbian civilizations. And they do an excellent job. I mean, you you know, again, I've not seen... Well, they've not released all this on, on Blu-ray yet. And I'm sure, you know, the uh, and I think actually on, even on my DVD, you can see the wrinkles um, and mm-hmm. you can see the shadows. But that, that kind of... Uh, your top of the pyramid, yes, yeah, where the TARDIS arrives at the top of the pyramid. It's where all the action happens. And it works really, really well. And obviously, Barry Newbury is a, you know, he's a he's a fated designer um, from the mm-hmm. 1960s, and that's why he's one of my top five. Okay. And I think he had to work within the small confines of uh, Lime Grove, right. Studio D. Right. Yeah. Uh, I, I haven't done enough research to, to, to ascertain that. It would have been quite easy to do that, but I didn't. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I think all of these, I mean, I think if we carry on doing top five sets as we go into the 70s and 80s we'll find of course yes um that there are and certainly if we go into the 2000s and and 2010s um we'll see mm-hmm. you know vast sound stages mm-hmm. where you know huge sets can be erected for great effect right not the case i mean doctor who's a kids you know it's a children's tv show they shoot it in rooms are not a lot bigger than the room i'm sitting in right now mm-hmm. um and the fact that they can achieve you know the majesty of Mexico City as built and ruled by the Aztecs, I, you know, fair play. Good luck. Well done. Yeah, I think what Newberry is able to achieve here is a sense of depth, and he's helped by 1960s cameras and being in black and white. True. But the theatrical background 
of being able to stage the world on a theater stage helps with being able to broaden out the Mexico City looking over the Mexican jungles. It does work within the confines of Lime Grove Studio D, and then I think for the middle middle two episodes, uh, they're in TV Center. Okay. So not only did it have to work in Lime Grove, but it also the sets were moved <laughs> into TV Center for the middle episodes. So like all productions of the time, it wasn't a fixed set. They set up the set for that evening's production and uh, and rehearsals, and then the set was struck. Yep. It's theater. Yeah, it is theater. And Newberry had to deal with the sets being damaged between different episodes being produced. In addition to the temple set and the, the tomb set, he has the garden set. And it's convincing for the audience. And the ambition of this first season with the geographical throw, um, I think due to our rules, we're not really including Marco Polo here right. as, a, um, as, as a set. But, you know, just the, okay, we're, we're going to travel. We're going to go from Venice to, to China. That's, that, that should be easy. You know, this, it's just <laughs> there's no sense that things can't be done simply because they seem really difficult. And I suppose, you know, the show is is it's still at this point obviously is it has a what is effectively a minor brief to educate and you know if you want to educate people about ancient cultures you have to show those cultures mm-hmm. and by and large an ancient culture is uh I'm exaggerating a little bit you know it's not an interior culture you have to show great geographical slash historical vistas mm-hmm. you can't just say well you know this is going to look a bit crap because we're in a tiny studio in Lime Grove, you go, okay, yeah, I'll just do it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there you go. That's my first choice. Excellent choice. And just a a sidebar, the reason we aren't choosing stories like Marco Polo is we put a constraint on this. We did. We had to have at least one episode extant in order to better uh, review the work of the designer. Right, So no animations, no entirely missing stories. So for my first choice, I'm also sticking within season one. Excellent. And I'm going with the Daleks. And this is Raymond Kuzik's design uh, with an assist from Jeremy Davies. And the reason why I chose the Daleks is the Dalek City specifically. I think it's a fantastic, otherworldly, alien uh, architecture that really highlights how different and alien the mutants the daleks are just with the the leaning corridors right and then you add the jungle sets there's a lot of variety within the serial but focusing in on the dalek city and where the where the doctor and crew explore in the first few episodes is really disconcerting and i think it's due largely in fact to, to kuzik's work of the design of the city and of course you have his design of the daleks too but it all works together yeah, actually, I think the, the fascinating, one of the interesting things about the Dalek City is you get a massive geographical vista. You know, you, they come over the brow of the hill or whatever they're doing. Yeah, um, good model and, work there. And the city is spread below. Um, but then when you get to the interior, the designers really made an effort to make a city that suits Daleks. Mm-hmm. And obviously, in general, you know, and I think the, the original design and kind of genesis of the Daleks, haha is kind of shrouded in in layers of what happened and what didn't happen and we're not we, mm-hmm. you know we don't really know how all this came about but there, there certainly appears that there was a desire to make sure that the daleks didn't look like 
people in rubber suits. You know, they didn't right. want to be just a, a human dressed up as an alien. They wanted to be a real alien. Mm-hmm. So you have creatures that don't have legs. They kind of glide around. So, you know, what kind of city would creatures that don't have legs and glide around end up shaped like giant pepper pots right what what would that city look like well there would be plenty of flat surfaces there'd be ramps there'd be no stairs they are a certain height if they're kind of basically below five feet or so then everything else it's all going to be kind of low and you get the doors which are kind of curved sort of dalek shape right and it's a it's again it's a real attempt to to go okay this is not a this is not a place that's designed for humans this is a place that's designed for daleks and i think that was the whole you know, thrust of the design mm-hmm. of that second serial is let's try and make things that are literally inhuman. Mm-hmm. Both literally, they're not human, but also metaphorically, they're inhuman as well. Since the Daleks are only about five feet high, the doors are only about five feet high. So you get someone like Ian Chesterton, William Russell, he has to duck between the doors. So you get that sense that this is a space that isn't designed for falls or humans it is designed for daleks absolutely and it's all very constrained or at a dalek scale rather than at a human scale and it's a very inexpensive way of conveying that you don't belong here right you have to duck right right yeah you have to yes exactly you're the wrong shape you're the wrong size and these are creatures that are in opposition to anything that's human mm-hmm. and you know, that's basically what the Daleks continue to be over their lifetime in the show. They are in opposition to everything that's human. Mm -hmm. And just in addition to the city sets, which are uh, austere, there's very little creature comforts because Daleks don't need creature comforts. You have the jungle, the petrified jungle set, which is post-nuclear war where everything is in stone. And it's our first jungle in Doctor Who, but it, it conveys otherworldliness too because it is uh there's strange beasts that are petrified there's strange flowers and it really feels out of this world absolutely which of course it should be because it's not supposed to be of this world Mm -hmm. yeah no and it's and it's you know i think it's a great you know everyone obviously everybody says and we all agree that it was that second serial that yeah. that really propelled doctor who to its um and the daleks propelled it to its current success and i think that's down to the attention to detail both mm-hmm. actual literal detail and also uh, conceptual detail as well and uh, so yeah that's why that's why it's a great show that's why it started out being a great show yeah. Yeah. yeah, and then again, this is in Lime Grove Studio D. So it's the smallest of all spaces that they make feel large just through the corridors of doors, doorways in the, in the Dalek right. City, ultimately going to a backdrop that has further doors painted on it just to add that depth and to create a space that just seems very Dalek-y. It, it, you know, the Daleks are an instant hit. Uh, Ray Cusick has that to his credit, not financially, but uh, historically. And he accentuates that he furthers it with the design of the, of the Dalek City on Scarl. Right. So that was my first pick. Excellent. Yeah. Congratulations. Congratulations <laughs> on that first pick. It's an excellent one. I'm going to go with my second pick now, Yeah. which is going to be from season two. And it is the Web Planet. Ooh, very uh, venturesome, I guess. 
<laughs> well, again, I'm sort of going to repeat myself a little bit, but, you know, I am rewarding ambition. Right. And I think our regular listener will, will already know I'm a big fan of the Web Planet. I'm going to... It's a definitely a hill that I'm prepared to die on several times mm-hmm. uh, to defend the web planet against all comers. And I think, that, again, the set designed by John Wood, I believe, who yep. also did The Chase, yep. uh, Myth Makers, and Celestial Toymaker, and also Space Pirates. Um, he did an excellent job because, again, it's an imp- absolutely impossible, it's an impossible brief. Uh, we're going to go to an alien planet where everyone is an alien. Mm-hmm. Apart, I mean, a non-humanoid alien apart from the TARDIS crew. All right, go. Oh, and by the way, we're going to shoot it in the smallest possible studio we can find, but it's got to be the largest possible planet that you can build. All right, get on with it. There's got to be pools of acid. <laughs> um, they've got to be distant mountains. There have to be moon and stars in right. the sky. Crater of needles. There's got to be, there's got to be a <laughs> crater of needles, whatever that is. And there's got to be some giant ants running around and some weird human moths running around mm-hmm. and some little grubs running around. Anyway, so, yeah, it, it is patently artificial in that you really can see the shadows being cast on the sky because the sky is a painted backdrop. You can really see that everyone is cramped and kind of um, and are, uh, are, are, being, are being shoehorned into a tiny space and having right. to pretend that it's a huge space. Mm-hmm. But... To me, that kind of artificiality of the whole thing kind of sells the story in that it's, 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 you really do have to suspend your disbelief because your disbelief is right up there on the screen. It doesn't look real. Right. So the only way to enjoy the web planet is to pretend that it's all real mm-hmm. and kind of disassociate your brain from, from anything that's logical and become completely illogical. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what makes it such a fun show to watch. Yeah, I think this was filmed in Ealing. And if you look at the web planet, the the flats, the scenery flats are like, there's hardly any room behind the actors at all. It, it, you have the surface of Vortis and, and it just goes right up to the flat. There's not a lot of room for the actors to be working with. And famously or infamously, one of the Zarbi it was so cramped it ran into one of the cameras filming a, one of the episodes. So Wood is trying to stretch out. We're on an alien world. We're on Vortis. He's trying to stretch this out in a really small space. And he gets away with it, I think. Absolutely. You have Monoptera. They're flying in. So you're, you're having Kirby wire work in this. And <laughs> there, there's a lot of demands being put on his design skills to realize this alien world this is kind of like our last real true alien world i think it's not something that we revisit a lot of just for the rtd concern of you know the planet Ming- yeah the planet of the ming monks yeah yeah and it's it's you know there's a kind of dying fall on this which is you know obviously what um what rtd's picked up on is the more you go to a purely alien planet with purely alien people right doing purely alien things like the less anyone cares about what they're up to which is fine but i mean this is really the first time we try this and it's brilliant uh, just to go back to the Zabi running into the camera I mean it's something that I've noticed in contemporary filmmaking particularly action films of the last half decade or so you do get um, I, I was what was I watching oh god it was that awful Guy Ritchie thing on the plane Operation Fortune which is not a great film um, but anyway when someone dies and you know there's like blood all over the place certainly in this movie and I think in other contemporary movies blood splatters the camera and I think, you know, that is movie making, taking 
taking its cue from kind of found footage and, you know, YouTube and blah, 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 that actually, you know, this is something that is being filmed. And when someone dies in a gout of blood, you get blood splots onto the lens, Mm -hmm. makes it seem more real. Uh, That's what the Zabi was doing. You know, it's running into the camera. This is being filmed. We're actually there, which to me... I mean, I love that bit where the zombie runs into the camera. It's funny, <laughs> but it also, like, this is real. This is really happening. Mm-hmm. This isn't pretend happening. It's actually happening. Mm-hmm. So, again, it's reward ambition. Now, this was directed by Richard Martin, and Richard Indeed. Martin also directed three episodes in The Daleks. And I wonder if we had Barry Newberry, who directed more of the city scenes, mm-hmm. because the ambition of... The Daleks, I think, is just as high as the ambition as a web planet and is the direction of Richard Martin letting down Wood's design. I mean, I think I'd have to know more about actually how things sort of were directed. The one thing that lets, I think, that lets the web planet down is the lighting Hmm. because the sets, obviously the backdrops, you know, have a very strong shadow cast that right. kind of gives the kind of depth and it's this kind of Chelsea Bonstall this is what outer space planets look like um, you don't get those very very sharp shadows in the actual lighting in the foreground because you know they're trying to make a TV show um, and you can't have very strong whites and very strong blacks because you, you kind of lose definition of the event that's the that's the thing that spoils it for me mm-hmm. the, is the is the difference between the lighting of the backdrops or the the painted backdrop that lighting and then the actual lighting of the real of the real action the other thing obviously you know theatrically what you're doing is you're kind of you know you're flooding the front with as much light as possible and that is casting the shadows onto the backdrop which gives the whole thing this kind of amazing artificial sense so i'm not sure what they could have done what richard martin could have done to 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 change that Mm -hmm. um by all i mean he's not a popular director um in fandom um for some reason uh i think he's just fine and like a lot of 1960s doctor directors you know he does an okay job um i love his cravat (laughs) so you know that's a that's That's a a that's a plus (laughs) <laughs> Definitely a plus. And I think he's doing the best that he can, basically. Mm-hmm. So the lighting, this was the first time that Ralph Walton was credited with lighting Ooh. on okay. a, a Doctor Who. He had previously worked on the Romans. So perhaps it was inexperience on Walton's part on how to light Doctor Who. Because he, he went on to to light like Doctor Who and the Silurians, which is well lit oh, okay. in the cave sequence and stuff. I don't think there's any any complaints like that. And he has other... Other black and white serials is uh, like the Time Muddler, which also is well lit. So I think it's mainly perhaps just inexperience that this is the first uh, one that he's doing. And we're on Vortis, which is uh, is a harder harder planet to light than, say, Earth in the Time Meddler or in the Crusade. You know, it's basically a moon. And yeah. So, as I said, you know, the shadows are black. And everything that's not in shadow is white. And that's very, very difficult to do and also make a TV show. I I think they probably could have tried a bit harder, but they didn't. Also, I'm just going to shout out to the Vaseline on the (laughs) lens, which again, you know, well done, Richard Martin. That gives the whole thing another layer of like, oh, what the hell's going on? Um, It's a great, like, what the hell's going on show. And Doctor Who is a very, um, and I guess, you know, Web Planet is kind of has a kind of rational 
Um, yeah, it's a, it's a it's a very usual story. Your Doctor Who ends up being a very very rational show, right. and I just love the irrationality of the Web Planet. It's just kind of this is nuts, and you think we're not going to do that? Well, look, we've just done it, um, right? <laughs> and I like that. Yeah, ambition, rewarding ambition, rewarding ambition. That is the keynote of my choices, and I think we're on to you. So my next choice, I'm going again with Ray Cusick, and Planet of the Giants is an ambitious story in that we are scaling down our time team, and Cusick's remit is to make the everyday world seem gigantic and terrifying, and he does that in spades. I think even the, the sets would stand up today for production, and if you look further a field, uh, you look at like uh, Carnival Monsters, where you have the different scales, you don't have the advantage of CSO with Planet of the Giants. This is all practical, all forced perspective, all oversized props. This is, I think, realizing the ordinary at a massive scale is uh, fantastically done by Ray Cusack in Planet of the Giants. I think when you said the advantage of CSO, you're, you're putting advantage in um, inverted commas there, right? <laughs> uh, well, we'll have to see when we go into the 70s. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the fact that they didn't have that technology means they do have to build everything. And since they do have to build everything, it all looks real um, because it is real. And right. I think the earthworms and things look a bit look a bit like, yeah, that's just a giant model of an earthworm but the famous plug scene i'm actually and you know yes telephones notebooks etc etc what what it is basically is it's it's taking from the incredible shrinking man which is a as everyone knows is a classic existential american movie about a man who incredibly shrinks and that has some just amazing 1957 there you go um so only only you know six seven years six years or so before before this happens it is a movie that really really sells the fact that someone is in, is someone is small mm-hmm. by building real sets and planet of giancy as much as it's not the greatest story um in that it doesn't really have a huge amount of plot other than this tardis crew are really small because we have the whole murder that they're trying to solve yeah it doesn't it's it's that doesn't have a lot well to me it doesn't really relate that well to the fact that they're really small, if you see what I mean. I mean, the plot isn't to do with the fact that they're small. Right, um, right. Uh, you know, they have to do a usual TARDIS thing, which is solve a mystery. And it's made harder and more ridiculous by the fact that they happen to be tiny for some reason. Right. Whereas you look at The Incredible Shrinking Man, the, actually the entire plot of the movie is what happens if what would happen if you were really small. Um, and what would happen if you kept on getting smaller, which is what makes it such a great, um, such a great film. Right. But as much as you can believe anything on Doctor Who, you believe that they're really small because they look really small because everything is really big and it's very well done. Um, I think one of the challenges of that kind of set building is to make sure that everything relates properly to itself so that things are big in the same way. And I think, um, I think Cusick really pulls that off. Yeah. And this is our first contemporary set story. So this is set in England, in in the UK, but as a time capsule for what England was like in late 1964, I think that's also very plausible. Granted, you didn't have to do a lot of research or anything for this, but you do convey the things that would be really familiar to the viewing audience, I think, are plausibly 
carried out so you right. can carry on with the suspension of disbelief. I think it's convincing and there's a good meshing between the inflated sets and then the human scaled sets where the murder mystery or the the crime thriller is happening. Right. Right, right, right. I absolutely agree. Yeah. It makes it worth watching. I mean, I think if you imagine what what the show would be like if our TARDIS crew were a normal size, it'd be like, okay, this isn't, yeah, this right. isn't very good. Right. But the the shrinking aspects makes it you know, pretty, um, pretty compelling. Yep. So your next story. My next story is, um, drum roll, is... Dun, fr- dun, 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 dun. I'm just going to check the season. We are fast forwarding to season four. And we're going with the moon base. Ooh, the Gravitron. Designed by <laughs> Colin Shaw. Excellent. And here we, we're going to rewind slightly back to my comments about my problems with the lighting on the web planet. Here, the lighting is absolutely excellent. And the kind of depth, the perspective that you get with the Cybermen lurching around on the moon's surface is, is fantastic. And the moon base itself, it's a really good base. It's, mm-hmm. it's kind of it has this kind of open feeling to it mm-hmm. it doesn't feel kind of claustrophobic like as other bases under siege can be it feels kind of open open to open to the moon's surface and the gravitron centrally placed within that base set is i think excellently done it's very spacey feeling um it's kind of space fantasy there's no real attempt i don't feel to kind of okay what would a moon base really look like there's no kind of, you know, the kind of influence of 2001 in terms of, you know, space set design is not yet, obviously, because the movie hasn't been made at this point. Right, right. So this is still kind of fantasy moon, and you get the, these great, again, these kind of great Chelsea Bonnestall vistas, which I think are very effectively lit. And it really, the, the Cybermen themselves work well as kind of extensions of the set that they feel very artificial they have a similar feeling to them a similar kind of aesthetic as the set itself and i think that just works really well i mean this is more costuming but my point about there's no real attempt to kind of what would a contemporary moon base look like the tardis crew spacesuits are absolutely astounding and i love those yeah those are fantastic i wish there was action figures of the tardis crew in those spaceships mm-hmm. because they look amazing you have to make some custom mods for that uh, yeah. i think we will exactly yeah <laughs> So this was, uh, again, uh, filmed in Ealing, and also uh, the first three episodes were filmed in Riverside. It was the last time, episode three is the last time that they were filmed in Riverside Studio. And then they were back for the the climax, uh, episode four, in Lime Grove. So, again, the sets had to work in multiple sound stages for carrying this out. And it's a good combination of model work to establish the vastness of the moon. But then the lunar set itself, we've already had pictures now from the moon, not from a manned moon landing, but from robotic landers. And the audience has an idea what the moon looks like. Now, to key off what you said, it's a fantasy moon base, yes. But the moon itself, I think, is more plausible. There's nothing there that the audience has to work hard to suspend their disbelief with that moon. No, exactly. Yep. 
there's certainly more fantastical elements once you get inside the uh, the the moon base itself. It's it's very much uh, BBC uh, base under siege design work. Right. Put the money in this big central set. Pretty much, we have the place where the the beds are, where the Jamie spends much of the episode. But the main money for that whole set is going for the gravitron room, and it it has that sense of scale where it feels big. You have the gravitron always in the background of shots with the controls in, in the foreground and you have the, the sealed off controls so it has multi layers, multi rooms connected to one big set to kind of make it seem bigger than it is and then the Gravitron itself is up a step so you have just a little bit of a height differential to work with when you're directing and filming to make more interesting right. shots. And I think the the scale of the set helps uh, make it seem like they're working on the moon. Yeah, it's, it's as I said, it's, it's it sells it really well, uh, and you know, it it kind of leans into what's important and leans out from what isn't important, and the kind of dominant dominant nature makes it sound like i don't know something that's weird um the kind of dominance of the um of the gravitron sells the unlikely premise that it's in charge of the world's weather which is like no it isn't that's no that's impossible but <laughs> yes it is because look at it it's huge and you have to climb up to it and look at its controls and blah 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 so yeah perfect um i wish there was more of the moon base i think the reconstruction animation is just fine but like all of these lost 60 stories i'd like a lot more of it yeah 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 I think with the moon base, we have very obvious where the trade-offs in the design are being made and also where having to move production between film studio, uh, television studio, different television studios comes into play where you can't, like with a movie set, bolt things down. So when you have Cybermen getting off tables in the sick bay, the tables wobble right. because you need to have that portability. Okay, we aren't going to spend the money to fasten this down like you would in a, a film, a cinema production. No, we're, we're, this is going to be out of here. We have to strike this set once the lights are down and it's going to be out and we're going to be moving it or another production is going to be moving in. Right, so right, right. anything that anything that adds cost, like, okay, we need to bolt these down, are not going to be uh, the, the, there are choices that aren't going to be made. So I think you can see where the pound is being stretched in the budget. So put the money on the gravitron, the central control, and then these other smaller sets. Right, right. We're not going to put the money on. We're going to make the moon on the soundstage look really fantastic because we're going to have these epic scenes or these right. iconic scenes of the Cybermen walking across the moon's surface or the time team in their uh, funky 60s space uh, bubble helmets. Right, right, right. But we're not going to put the money into where the doctor and Polly are doing their experiments, for example. Right. It's, it's where is the biggest bang for the buck going to be? And we want to make the Gravitron set. That's where we want to focus. And that's where the majority of money is to come yeah. across. Yeah, absolutely. Excellent choice. Thank you very much. And good to have a, a slightly missing story. Yeah, and, there you go. Um, I will continue on with Cybermen. And I'm going to take the easy one, I think, is the Tomb of the Cybermen. Ah, <laughs> uh, bingo. We chose the same one. Oh, so snap. Snap. There you go. Tomb of the Cybermen. 
I guess why I chose it is this is the first time I believe we get monster branding, so to speak. They have a logo. So this is designed by Martin Johnson. And the fact that the Cybermen have branding, it makes sense, but it doesn't make sense at all. <laughs> it's It adds to the Tomb of Horrors, the Egyptian tombs, where you're definitely riffing off the mummy. But for the Cybermen to have this design aesthetic, it's bizarre, but it becomes iconic. Right. And then the big, the huge, the tomb set, which is very vertical. I think it's only like four or five layers high. Okay. But I believe this is the only work that Johnson did on Doctor Who. So what he was able to visualize with this Tomb of the Cybermen, I think is fantastic. Absolutely. It's to go back to you know my comments about Web Planet, here we are on an alien planet and we're visiting an alien planet. Um obviously the visitors are all are all humans, mm -hmm. but we are engaging with a with an alien civilization and a lost civilization. And there's a lot of um the set has to do a lot of work because until the Cybermen turn up, until we awaken them from their tombs, they have to be present. So the door is fantastic and with the logo on it and um, mm -hmm. you know all of the, the kind of mystery of the Cybermen. Obviously, the Cybermen emerging from their tombs is, is kind of absolutely iconic. Right. Doctor Who moment, which for many years we thought we had lost and then suddenly it returned in mm -hmm. the early 90s and we, are, we were just kind of blown away for a second time. It's really spectacular. It's really filmic. I guess I'm just talking about the story in general now. But, you know, we start out with, with some live action shooting, which is, you know, relatively, yes. um, relatively rare in 60s Doctor Who or not common enough. But that, again, incredibly well judged because it sets the scene. It's okay. We are, we are somewhere else. Look, this is film of where we are. Mm -hmm. And then you, we go into the tomb and the tomb is obviously a set and it's, and it's artificial. Right. But it, again, it just sells everything in a really, really effective way. I think this is again at uh, Lime Grove Studio D, which is the smallest of small sound stages, but that they were able to make it seem big. And the way you do that is when they're entering the tomb, the famous scene where the doctor and Jamie take each other's hands, leaving Victoria outside, you're looking through the open tomb doors and you have that sense of depth. And then when you get into the control room, the entrance to the tomb is up on a dais. And so it's there so the characters can climb down a ladder and then crouch down to give that illusion that they're going down into the lower level, the tomb level. So right, right. there's really effective design work of making this claustrophobic, this stuffy studio seem a lot bigger and tomb-like than it, than it is, these vast cyber tombs, just by being able to combine in our minds the different layers of the tomb on Telos that is assisted by Johnson's use of just, uh, you have to go up and then you have to go down and you're climbing down ladders. You're right, enforcing right. the idea, reinforcing the idea that these are huge. And again, I mean, I think it would have been, temp you know, you could have leaned into, okay, well, a tomb is a small enclosed space. We're filming in small enclosed spaces. That's what the tomb should look like. And they just didn't do that. Well, no, these have to be, mm -hmm. these have to be vast 
in a way that in general tombs aren't really vast certainly not in not in, inside them right but it gives the whole thing a very kind of epic feel and it is it's an epic story mm-hmm. and as i said the the set designs really emphasize that yeah, you could have done tombs like they did in the Rebos operation, right. where they're just catacombs, and the Cybermen could have just been in little alcoves. Right. But the, that verticality of that tomb set makes it, that adds to the epicness, the massiveness of the Cybermen, which is kind of preluded by having small Debbie Watling go into the uh, rejuvenation or this, uh, that recess in the wall when they're exploring the early episodes, and right. she's just dwarfed by it where she's trapped. So that scale is being introduced early on. The doors are massive. Everything about the Cybermen are bigger than these humans, especially the time team, which are short people, relatively yeah. short actors. So even though we're in a small space in Studio D, it feels big. And that's a credit to Johnson's design work. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Agreed, agreed, agreed. Um, I will continue on. And we are sort of doing the sort of, I think, probably uh, polar opposite in some ways of what we've just been talking about with the Tomb of the Cybermen. And we're staying in season five, and we're doing the Web of Fear. Snap! Oh, another snap. <laughs> um, because we, uh, you know, famously, and I can't really speak to this because it involves a, a different way of seeing that I don't really have anymore, because, or I've never really had because I come from a different, different time. Mm-hmm. But famously, everybody thought that they actually did film in the London Underground. Yes. Um, when, of course, they didn't film in the London Underground because they weren't allowed to. And they just built sets, and it doesn't look that convincing to me. But for people at the time, it's like, blimey, they're in the London Underground. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, it's, it's in some ways, it's not very surprising that they were able to build a really accurate-looking London Underground set because everybody who worked on Doctor Who would travel to work every day on the London Underground, obviously. Mm-hmm. But one of the things I do, I also very much like about the set design in Web of Fear is the claustrophobia. Right, And these are really claustrophobic, enclosed, tight, dark spaces. There is no re- there's no attempt to kind of break out these spaces in any kind of way because again, like the like the platform sets, the set designer, um, David Myerskoff Jones, yep. sort of knows the London Underground and okay, any room that was in you know the Good Street fortress would be small and enclosed because that's what rooms are like in the London Underground and they really go for it I think I've talked before about how some of these 60s uh, animation reconstructions I have slight problems with because they they build the, the, the animations have these very expansive large spaces which the figures kind of potter around in whereas this it's just the claustrophobia of the whole thing um, and the kind of murder mystery aspect of um, Web of Fear, like, well, who is the traitor, uh, is is really heightened. That kind of Agatha Christie, who's the murderer thing, is really heightened by the fact that there's no there's nowhere to go. They're trapped um, in these tiny spaces. Mm-hmm. I think in addition to the underground tunnel spaces, Booking Hall at Piccadilly Station in the final uh, episode is also well realized. Right. This is uh, Myers Cuff Jones' first Doctor Who serial. He did two in the 70s later. But I know you say that they would all know what the underground would look like, but then so would the audience would know what the underground would look like. And the ability to screw it up 
right. is that much higher. So that you have the pressure of you have to realize something and make it convincing that everyone is familiar with, but then do it on a soundstage. So it's not a trivial task to do something uh, effective that everyone knows what it is and have that suspension of disbelief. No, agreed, agreed. I, I think the stakes are higher in television and in cinema than it would be on a theatrical stage where you know you're in a place and you know you're watching a play. With a television production, there's a good chance that this could have been on location or at certainly today. You would not be building up the sets unless you're doing some kind of explosions or right. some kind of a special effect. If it was just we want someone talking on a platform, you're going to go down. You're going to get permission from London Transfer to um, film underground. You would find the money for the budget to do it. You wouldn't be doing it right, in, right. in sets. Yeah. The whole premise of the show, of the plot of the story, is completely sold using the sets. And, uh, you know, when there is live-action filming, I mean, location filming, right. um, when they're in Covent Garden, that just kind of adds to, well, they must be in the London Underground then. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is, So, yeah, it's, it's a tour de force mm-hmm. and very well done by David Myerscough-Jones. Yep. It's very effective and it's right. very believable that, yeah, we're in the underground, we're in a mansion, we're, we're in a shop off Covent Garden. Right. Even the small, even the briefly used sets all works i think incredibly incredibly well yeah no absolutely absolutely um well that's me done i'm afraid okay but i think you still have another one in the bag yes. excellent good i do have another one and right. is from episode one of an unearthly child it's peter bricacci's tardis set oh yeah well okay iconic obviously it's to this day, I think it's one of the best, if not the best TARDIS sets. It is amazing. It feels like it's alien technology. The roundel walls, it just feels like this is a different show. This is something you want to come back and watch next week in so much, I think we overlook how influential and how iconic and how important getting that first set right was mm-hmm. for the TARDIS. But he nailed it, and he'd never wanted to work on Doctor Who again. <laughs> and if, if Adventure in Space and Time is any indication, he really kind of blew off Lambert and just with a hole punch, just here's your walls, go away, stop bothering me. You know, it came across as not important to him. I don't know how apocryphal right. enough that scene is, but. What he established with that TARDIS set carried them through the 60s and effectively all the way through the 1980s with the brief diversions during the 70s. That design, if you look at the design in The Five Doctors, it's heavily inspired. The roundo elements is there throughout the classic, the 20th century run, but then also it's picked up in the 21st century it's still a design element of the console room. You have the time rotor right. and you have roundels. And as long as you have those two elements, you know you're inside the TARDIS. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I wonder whether, um, you know, that, as you said, you know, that story is, is quite possibly apocryphal. But I think, it, I mean, you know, I wonder whether the, um, if, if the designer did not give it a huge amount of thought and the design of the TARDIS interior was something that happened quickly without a lot of, you know, 
fine detail work, maybe that's what makes it so good mm-hmm. that it kind of flopped immediately from someone's brain and then that brain immediately moved on to something else. It's an instant sketch right. and it's intuitive. It's an intuitive piece of design rather than a kind of thought piece of design. I wonder what wonder if that makes one of the things that makes it so successful. It could be. I think it also, since it is a, a simple, I mean, it, it not, simple is not a, a, a slam against it. It's brilliant design, but it, yeah. it's, it, it's, it's it's not overly fussy. It's not overly complicated. Exactly. But this the simplicity of it allows for other designers to then to extend it or make right. it do what they need it to do. Well, I need another flat, or I need another room off the console room, right, right. or I want the roundels to open to expose controls or be storage. It is a canvas for other designers to work with and make what they need to happen in the TARDIS, inside the TARDIS, possible. If you had this very rigid spaceship design, you couldn't do that. But the flexibility, the openness of the round old design, you're there. You can extend it, embrace it, whatever way you need it to work for your story you need to design for yeah, no, absolutely. I agree. I agree. So it's a it's a brilliant design, and it's a shame that he didn't bring other uh, designs to this serial because I'd be very curious to see what Bercacci would have come up with. Right. Do we know? I mean, I'm sure we do. With what other shows did he design? Hmm, that's a good question. I will look here quickly. I mean, I guess I could have looked at that while you were talking, but it just kind of popped into my head. You know, what was the what was he known best for designing at the BBC, if anything? If we know. So, best known from When the Boat Came In from 1976 and The Battle of the Sexes in 1976. Wow, okay. Hmm. I mean, I guess that's all That's all realist stuff. That's all sets and designs of things that are happening right now. Though I guess When the Boat Comes In, as mm-hmm. far as I remember, was maybe late 19th century. Um, so, obviously, not a, not a fantasy sci-fi guy. Just a pretty standard-ish... BBC designer designing BBC shows. Yeah. When the boat came in was the aftermath of the Great War uh, serial, right? So it was set in the 20s. Was it the 20s? Okay. All right. Well, still, you know, but it's all it's all stuff. You know, it's all kind of stuff that we see around. Mm-hmm. I think, I, I don't know. Yes, I mean, maybe there is a there's a virtue here in, in giving someone who is not used to designing fantasy sets. Okay, design a fantasy set, see what happens. Well, he did revisit sci-fi. I'm looking at uh, IMDb here. He did revisit for one episode of Blake 7. Oh, interesting. Okay. But yeah, he didn't really do much with sci-fi. Yeah. Jobbing designer. Yeah, just uh, part of the BBC design right. design crew. But you're right. He did uh, like Zed Cars. He did like nine episodes of Zed Cars. So he was probably more into what's uh, contemporary Contemporary stuff. Yeah, or, yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Cool. Well, there we go. Some amazing sets there from the 1960s. It's uh, pretty much dominated by Ray Cusick and Barry Newberry. Right. So I think we had a a good spread where we didn't entirely just cherry pick their best work. And they have a lot of great works. Right. So it's very good designers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So thank you for listening to episode 228 of the Metabulous 2 podcast i have been talking about classic doctor who design with ben and i have been talking about classic doctor who design with david and until next time farewell
Oh, he designed all this, did he? The design is completely immaterial, young man. Well, I must say it's a, an astonishing shape and design. <laughs> marvelous work, marvelous. Well, this is interesting, yes. Obviously an interstellar spaceship of considerably advanced design. Now, it's a slightly different design to the TARDIS.